So during this conference, we gather at the hour of mercy. And so I want to focus on how do we dispose ourselves more to receiving that kind of mercy. And this morning, I talked about how, you know, we're created to love as daughters, spouses, mothers. And that the evil one attacks that vocation to love, like right at the root, at the level of knowing that we're loved as his beloved sons and daughters. And those attacks, they come in, they can come in big ways. They can come in small ways. Sometimes they come through the normal things that just happen. Sometimes they just happen like they're just things that happen in life. And the way that the evil one manipulates is to sort of have us think about it in a distorted way. And so, so I'll share with you an example from my own life of something that wasn't tragic, right? Not tragic, because we always like to say things like, well, Father, like, the people have tragedies. Like, my life's not as bad as their life. But it's just a small thing. Um, so I was about, so I was two years old when my mother died, when my um, dad married my stepmom about a year later. And, um, and after they got married, we lived in the same house that, uh, that I'd grown up in for the first four years. So we lived in the same house that my mom died in which I think was really hard for my parents and they were trying to start their life over. Um, they didn't have anybody like father Kilcally saying to them, like, you have to let Jesus into your pain. You can't just like reboot. Uh, so they were trying to reboot. And so what they did was they moved away. So we moved about 20 minutes away. They kind of got all new friends, didn't keep up with any friends that knew my mother, um, which meant I didn't keep up with anybody that knew me for the first four years of my life, which was pretty painful for me. I when I was about four, I used to walk around and like introduce myself to people. And I'd be like, my name's Sean. My mom died because I was trying to process that. And like, it, it wasn't really, I didn't have the ability to process that in my own family. And so like everywhere I went, I was like, my mom died. Um, and, uh, you know, and I've heard stories like that from other people, you know, where they're little ones, you know, they're just innocent and they're trying to figure out life. And, uh, you know, there's, and that's just what I did. And so what my parents did to help me was get me a dog. And, Cause that's what you do. Like, we'll get him a pet and he'll feel better. And, you know, dogs are proven to be attachment kind of vehicles for attachment relationships and so they got me this cocker spaniel dog named casey and i loved that dog and the dog loved me and the dog hated everybody else in my family so one day my sister tried to use casey as a pillow he didn't like that kind of snapped at her didn't bite her just snapped at her and um and then I woke up on one Saturday morning and I walked down the stairs and I noticed out of the corner of my eye that there was no dog dish where there used to be a dog dish. I was like, well, what am I going to do? It's my job to feed the dog. And uh, so I start looking in the dishwasher. Well, maybe somebody put it in the dish, no dog dish in the dishwasher. 
Started going through the cupboards, looking for dog. There's no dog food in the cupboard. There's no dog dish, no dog food, no sign the dog ever existed. And then I could hear my mom calling me from upstairs, like, Shawnee. I go upstairs, and she says, Daddy took Casey to the farm where he can run around with the other dogs and be happy. And I was like, so there's a wound there, right? It's not tragic. It's not like the worst thing that could possibly ever happen in life. But there was this wound there because for me, like that was my dog. And, uh, and the fact that the dog loved me and not anybody else in my family, that was what like told me I was special and unique and unrepeatable and it was gone. And so then when there's a wound, there's all these lies that come around the wound. And so the lies that started to show up were things like, you're not really supposed to have anything that's just for you. Like you're not supposed to be happy. Your family's happiness is more important than your happiness. Specifically, my sister's happiness is more important than my happiness. And so those things start to like come into my thought process. And then I made this vow. So there's a vow that kind of happens out of that wound and those lies. And so the purpose of the vow is to make sure that I never experience that kind of a pain again. Right? It's a protective vow, which is also unholy. And the vow sounded like this. I will always sacrifice my happiness for the sake of my family's happiness. But that sounds good, right? That sounds like a good thing. But that's a good thing. Like, that's like a book about a saint. Like, Saint Sean Kilcully from a young age made a vow to always sacrifice his happiness for the sake of everybody else's happiness. It sounds like a holy thing, but it caused a lot of destruction in my life. Because, like, as I grew older, then when situations would arise where... Um, like my grandma in Ireland got sick and I was captain of the swim team. We had championships coming up and they were like in February, my last chance to qualify for state, my last chance to lower the time in my school records that I held. And my grandma gets sick and my dad wants to visit her and he wants me to go. And he wants to go during swimming championships. So the question is, did I even tell him that there were swimming championships? Nope. Because I will always sacrifice my happiness for the sake of my family's happiness. And so we go and we're over there and I call back home and I'm like pumping up the team and telling, you know, like, you guys are going to be great. Da, da, da. I get off the phone. My dad says, oh, I didn't realize that was going on. We could have come like next month. So when I hinted at the fact that it was going on, he was like, well, what do you want me to do? My mom's sick. Okay. Sorry. I asked. And then when my parents got divorced, when I was in college, the first thought that came into my mind was like my vow and I will always sacrifice my happiness for the sake of my family's happiness. So I'm going to leave West Point, go home and raise my siblings. That's what I think I'm supposed to do because it's congruent with the vow I made. 
And then I talked to a bunch of people who gave me advice and they gave me this really crazy advice. Like you have to take care of yourself before you can take care of other people. And you need to put your oxygen mask on before you help the person next to you. Like all those ridiculous things. Like things for weak people. <laughs> like those things aren't for me. Those things are for weak people. Because like I'm, I made this, you know, promise and... I'm not supposed to be happy. Like happiness is for the weak. It's ridiculous. So, um, so, but I ended up taking this advice from these people and I stayed at military Academy. And then by the time I was a senior at military Academy, my two younger sisters had dropped out of school. Whose fault was it? This guy's. And then my, Brother got alcohol poisoning when he was about 12. Whose fault was it? Mine. Family member gets an abortion. Whose fault is it? Mine. This went on into my priesthood. This went on for like years. And every time something bad happened to somebody in my family, I would be filled with guilt. I would be filled with shame. It's all your fault. You're living the wrong life. Seven years into my priesthood, I have this idea of, like, I'm trying to redeem my life that I'm supposed to have because I did the wrong thing, and I was supposed to go home and raise my siblings. And I'm just doing my best to redeem that. But, like, every time something happens, it's like a trigger for me, and I start going into this spin cycle and watching One Tree Hill for 18 hours. And so it was a path to destruction. And, and there was one day when I was in Rome and I had been praying these deliverance prayers for a while. And, um, and then this one day, I don't even know what the circumstances were. I think I was probably actually watching a TV show and there was something that happened in the TV show that triggered this idea that that wasn't my fault. Like that wasn't my job. And then it was like, this huge weight was lifted. Like, it was my parents' job to raise my siblings, not mine. And this weight was lifted. And in that moment, I, can, I remember very clearly as I was having this clarity and how the Holy Spirit entered into my life because, like, my room smelled like flowers. And it was really bad. Like, it was really strong. And I'm, like, looking everywhere for the cleaning detergent that I spilled or something because my room just had this very strong smell of flowers. And I'm like going outside, and I'm trying to figure out like where in the incredibly stinky city of Rome all these flowers are coming from. And they were definitely overpowering the cigarette ashes on my desk. And it was like the Holy Spirit kind of came in. And up until that time in my life, I'd always kind of felt like two people all the time. And then since then, never again. Because our Lord was able to, like, drill through that. And, and so, like, that small wound ended up in these, like, lies, which ended up in this identity vow, which ended up in this destruction. But our Lord, what does our Lord want to do? He wants to speak the truth into the wound. And so praying through that intentionally, what does that look like in a prayer exercise? So... When I pray through that, it sort of looks like this. It starts with asking the question, Jesus, what do you remember about 
the day my dog was gone. Like, Jesus, what do you remember about this? Right, which is, it's a different kind of a question. It's not saying, Jesus, this is what I remember. It's saying, Jesus, what do you remember? Because his memory is different than our memory. Right, and all of you know this from the position of being a parent. Right, you have a memory of your children's life, which starts with a positive pregnancy test. Right? Especially as a mother. It's one of the gifts of motherhood. You have this window into the divine vision because you hold memories of your children that they don't have access to. Like you remember when your kid kicked you in the ribs really hard. You remember the first time you felt them move. You remember all of that. And they have no access to that. You remember their first steps very clearly. They don't have access to that. And it's true about us in Jesus that Jesus remembers our life from a perspective that we don't remember. And he has a memory of his relationship to it that's different from ours. So Jesus, what do you remember about the day that Casey was gone? And then I go into my memory, and I just use my imagination in a very detailed way, and I walk myself through the whole thing so I can see myself standing at the top of the stairs, holding onto the banister as I'm going down the stairs, looking at the green shag carpet, seeing the yellow linoleum kitchen tiles, kind of the yellow refrigerator, and then noticing that there's no dog dish or dog bowl. And as I'm walking through that memory, I can feel the kind of anxiety and worry in the moment of what am I going to do? Pulling open the dishwasher and looking, and I can like see you know, what the 1970s dishwasher looked like. Going through the cupboards. Wondering what happened, knowing something's wrong and not having an explanation and feeling really confused. And then my mom calls me upstairs. So I see myself going up to her room. It's right at the top of the stairs. And I walk in and she tells me, daddy took Casey to the farm. And feeling the weight of that. And like feeling the weight of that wound. And as I go through that with our Lord, I can see our Lord. And our Lord is just standing behind me while my mom's telling me this. And as those lies start, I can see his hands on my shoulders. Feel his hands on my shoulders. And then when I turn around to leave, Our Lord just kind of picks me up and he carries me into another place. And just holds me there and says, Sean, I'm sorry this happened to you. I want every good thing for you. I created you to love and to be loved and to have joy.
your happiness matters to me. This shouldn't have happened to you. I will always love you. I will never leave you. And he just continues to say those things to me. And so as that happens, then the sort of anxiety gives way to that feeling of safety and security and comfort in him. And it's a space for allowing our Lord to speak the truth into that place. To speak the truth into that place. And so it's just a very kind of simple way to try to open ourselves up to the truth about our lives that our Lord knows and we don't have access to. Jesus, what do you remember about the time my dog was gone? Jesus, what do you remember about this incident of abuse? Jesus, what do you remember about my drunken years? Jesus, what do you remember about my promiscuity? Jesus, what do you remember about when my parent died? You know, whatever those things are, those wherever those obstacles are, like, what does our Lord remember about it, and how does he see it? Because he sees us differently than we see ourselves, and we come to know ourselves as we come to know ourselves in relationship with him, which means he gives us our identity. Right? He gives us our identity. You know, and you've all done this with those of you who have children, you've all done this with your children. When they go home and say things like, I'm stupid, you're not stupid. I love you. You're amazing. You're amazing at this, that, the other thing. I'm always here for you. You give them their identity. And our Lord is the one who gives us our identity as Christians. You know, our Lord gave an identity to that Samaritan woman when he loved her anyways. Our Lord gave a new identity to Levi when he called him from being a tax collector. And our Lord wants to give each of us a new identity. And sometimes we might say, well, I'm good. I'm good. Like Those things aren't horrible. But he still wants to heal it. Like He still wants to heal it. We can't minimize our pain. And one of the hardest, I think, things for most of us to do is to recognize that we weren't married or we weren't raised by the Blessed Virgin Mary and St. Joseph. Because there's lots of spiritual writers and, you know, like Sister's book, and she's talking about, I didn't come from the perfect family. And I'm like, oh, I didn't come from the perfect family. And our families might be caricatures of a dysfunctional family, but no family is like Mary and St. Joseph. And we're not throwing our parents under the bus by just saying, I didn't get what I needed in certain places, in certain ways. And our Lord wants to give you everything that you needed. 
That's why he came into the world. He came into the world to heal all of us of whatever needs to be healed. And there's, you know, another way of kind of praying with those things is to find passages in Scripture that we connect with and place ourselves in that scene and then allow our Lord to speak to us there so that we come to experience his mercy. So we come to experience his mercy. And so praying with Scripture, doing Lectio Divina, it's another way of disposing us to his mercy. But that means when we do pray that Lexio Divina, we're trying to be in the position of receiving healing and receiving mercy. So this one kid came in to see me and uh, because he had a problem with addictions and, and he was really struggling. And so I gave him the assignment to pray over the paralytic who's lowered into the synagogue on the mat, you know, and they take him up on the roof and they open up the roof and they lower him down. And I was like, pray through that and uh, come back next week and we'll talk through how your prayer went. And so he comes back the next week and he says, okay, so father, I was, I could really see everything. And, uh, and there was this big crowd of people and Jesus was on the other side of the crowd. And I looked down at the ground and I saw this sick guy. And so, like, I picked up the mat with some other guys, and I was like, okay, well, we got to get him to Jesus, and we're trying to get him to Jesus. And I was like, stop, wait, wait, wait. Why aren't you on the mat? Uh, I don't like being the guy on the mat. (laughs) And then I was like, why'd you come to see me again? Uh, Because I need healing. You're not going to receive healing if you're not willing to be the guy on the mat. Okay, so let's go back and do that again. Or feeding the 5,000. He's there with his basket, loading it up, is ready to go feed all the people. Why aren't you hungry? Being a son or a daughter means we're dependent on our Lord. And so we have to put ourselves in that place of dependence so that we can see the look of love. Right? So we can see the look of love. And one of the ways, like, how do we experience our Lord? Do we experience the look of love? You know, one of the things, some of you have heard me say this over and over and over again, and I apologize. You know, but when we look at the crucifix, what do we see? Do we see the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his only son? Do we see the fact that God loved us so much that he became like us in all things but sin, and then he took on himself the consequence of the sin of the world, and he gave his life for us to heal us? Do we see the fact that even though I'm a sinner, Christ died for me? Or do we see, like, I'm a horrible person because all my sins hurt Jesus, and I did all that to him, and I hope someday I'll stop doing that to him, and maybe if I stop doing that to him, then I'll be able to make up for my sins, and then he'll love me later. I used to think like that because I was catechized by Sister Margaret Mary of the disgruntled heart of Jesus. (laughs) Like every time you commit a sin, you drive another nail into Jesus's hands. And that's true. It's true that our Lord took on himself the consequence of the sin of the world, which includes my personal sin. But it also includes all of the sins that were ever committed against me. 
So he felt the consequence of all the sins committed against me, which means that when I felt like I'm not supposed to be happy or I don't belong in my own family or my family's happiness is more important than my happiness or if somebody felt like I have no value except for my bodily value, I'm not worthy of real love, I'm not worthy of real marriage, Jesus felt all those things. And if that's true, that means he knows me more than anyone knows me and he loves me more than anyone loves me. And if that's true... If that's true, then I can (coughs) entrust everything to him. I can just give up and surrender to him. In the scripture passage that I'd point to, you know, leading into this next period of adoration is in John chapter 8. And so this morning we did the Samaritan woman at the well and John chapter 4, and in John chapter 8, there's the woman who's caught in adultery. And it says in the text that she's caught in the very act of committing adultery. And so we can kind of think about her life. And it says, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and made her stand in the middle they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. So, so this woman obviously has been committing adultery for some time. She's most likely a prostitute. She probably ended up in prostitution the same way that people end up in it today, which is like they were abused or maybe she was raped or maybe her parents died and she just like didn't feel worthy of real love or worthy of real marriage. And because she wasn't a virgin anymore, she can't have real marriage. And she comes to the conclusion that the best she can do is to go from man to man to man to man to man. And maybe someday, like, it'll all end for her. She probably wishes that she would die soon. And maybe sometimes wishes she was dead. And then one day all these men barge into the room and they take her and they drag her out in the street and they throw her down in front of Jesus and this crowd gathers around her. And they say this, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him so that they could have some charge to bring against him. And so what does Jesus do? He bends down and writes in the sand. He bends down and writes in the sand. And there's lots of speculation people will do on what he wrote in the sand. Was he writing everybody's sins or, you know, what was he writing? But I think he was really just kind of like waving his finger where the girl was looking. Because if that was me and I was totally exposed in front of all of these people, I would be looking at the ground. And he's kind of just like, hey, look at my finger. So he can catch her eye. And she probably looks up and she sees him looking at her. And she looks away. Like we do when people catch us staring. And and then he stands up and he says, let the one among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then again he bent down and wrote on the ground. So whoever of you has no sin can cast the first stone. Hey, look at my finger. And I imagine that this time he catches her eye. 
And she starts to notice him looking at her. And she starts looking at him looking at her. And he's looking at her differently than everybody else looks at her. Like the crowd is looking at her with a look that confirms everything that she believes about herself. Like the crowd's look is confirming of the voices in her head. You're not worthy of real love. You're not worthy of real marriage. Your only value is your bodily value. And I want to kill you right now because you're making me sin. Because I'm thinking about what you just got done doing. But Jesus is looking at her with love and he's looking into her. He's looking at her in a way that knows everything that she's been through, that knows all of her pain, that knows the pain of all the sins committed against her in her life. He knows her heart. And then I imagine the crowd sort of noticing this whole dynamic. And they start questioning, how does Jesus look at her that way? I keep looking at her body, but he's looking at her with love. He's looking into her. And then maybe they remember Jesus' words, whoever looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And they start dropping their stones. Until it's just Jesus and the woman. And then he says to her, woman, has no one condemned you? And she answers, no one, sir. And the no one, sir, includes herself. The no one, sir, includes herself. Somewhere in the look of love, she started to see herself the way our Lord sees her and not the way that the crowd sees her. She started to receive her identity from him and not from the crowd. And when she's able to say that with freedom, no one, sir, then he says, go and sin no more. And then she just follows after him. She shows up at the Pharisee's house and she washes his feet with her tears. Again, everybody questions this. If you knew what kind of woman this was, you wouldn't allow her near you. And then she shows up at the crucifixion and she's the first to discover the empty tomb. She throws herself around his feet. She comes to announce the gospel to the rest of the apostles. She was transformed by love. She's transformed by the look of love. She learned who she was as a daughter. And then that bare fruit in the way that she proclaimed the gospel during the rest of her life. Now, that's what our Lord wants for you. He wants to do the same thing in our lives. And that's really the point of going to Eucharistic adoration. Because the same Jesus 
who encountered that woman is present on the altar. The same Jesus who came into the world and gave his life for our sins. The same Jesus who sweat blood as he was reflecting on all of our sins and all the sins committed against us. The same Jesus who rose again and is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's who's on the altar. Which means he really loves you. So much to make sure that he would be present to you even now so that you wouldn't miss the look of love. And so this afternoon, I just invite you to just spend some time looking at him, looking at you. And recognize that he looks at you differently. than anybody else looks at you. He looks at you differently than your families or differently than your parents looked at you or differently than your husbands look at you or differently than you look at yourself. And he looks at you with that pure, unconditional love. And you might take some time to go through some of those memories with him that have been stirred up. Jesus, what do you remember about that one time? Do you still love me? And let him respond to you. You know that I love you. And just recognize that it's in this place, like this is the place of mercy. And it's mercy that leads to conversion. The path to knowing who we are in Christ is receiving his mercy. And during this next hour, I'll also continue to be available for confessions in the back of the chapel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time to reflect on your great love for us. The ways that you have transformed the world with your love. We ask you to transform our own hearts today. To speak the truth into whatever lies surround our hearts. To reveal your face to us. Help us to discover who we are in a new and profound way. And to realize just as you bent down to write in the sand in order to encounter the woman, so too you came down from heaven and before you died you took bread and said this is my body so that you would always be 
in our line of sight. That you've gone through great lengths to encounter us. Just help us to be open to that. To take down any walls that we place up. To be real with you. That we may fully experience being loved by you.